All right, guys, good morning. Welcome to Salt City. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, yeah, I'm excited to be able to preach the Bible this morning. Um, I think one of the maybe misunderstandings I had about Christianity early on was sort of formed at youth group. And I remember there was this pattern when I went to youth group growing up, and essentially somebody would come up and share their God story or their testimony about what God was doing in their life. And the story generally went like, before I knew Jesus, my life was terrible. Then I came to know Jesus, and now everything in my life has been great. And I remember sitting there going, am I the only one who, that hasn't been their experience? But, but I think the general understanding in the room was essentially, like, God has done this great work of salvation in my life, and because he's done this great work of salvation in my life, that work is sort of done, and now I just need to be thankful for it. But I think what we're seeing in the book of Exodus, and sort of the reason that narrative in the Bible is really helpful, is that God, yes, he has saved us, done this incredible act of salvation in our lives, but he actually wants to continue repeating his story of redemption in your life. So salvation isn't just something that's happened in the past, but it's something that is continuing to happen in your life. And that especially applies when we're experiencing suffering. And this experience of the Israelites in the wilderness is sort of analogous to the sufferings in our lives. I'm going to give you a super cheesy, one-line, big idea. And that's, when life gets tough, the Lord is enough. All right? You got that? You see how I came up with that? Tough and enough, they rhyme. It's really catchy. But... Um, it, it might be cheesy, but it's true, and I want you to remember it because it's inevitable that you'll have wilderness seasons in your life that will continue to repeat. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we're going to see three ways that God shows himself to be enough. The first one is the Lord heals. All right, we're looking at Exodus chapter 15. We're starting in verse 22, and we're going to read through verse 26. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Okay, so remember what's just happened in the story of Exodus is the people of Israel have famously been saved through the Red Sea. They were on one side of the Red Sea. God told them, just wait, be silent, watch the salvation of the Lord. They walk through on dry land. The Egyptians chase them in. Their chariots and horses were covered up with water, and the Israelites had stood on the other side of the Red Sea, first stunned 
that God had saved them again. And secondly, they started to sing and rejoice. So they went from stunned and singing to three days later being thirsty and grumbling. This is so us. We can be at a worship service. We can have a great time in God's Word. We're stunned. We're singing. We're in tears. We're so thankful for God's salvation. And just a short time later, we experience a wilderness season and we are grumbling against God. And in their season of grumbling, it starts to get worse. They're thirsty and they come across a place called Mara. Now, the name Mara literally means bitter. This place is famous for having the worst drinking water ever. It's bitter water. So they're thirsty, they come to Mara, things get worse before they get better. And so they're grumbling against Moses, and the text makes clear in another place that their grumbling against Moses is really a grumbling against God. Moses is just the closest person they can get to that they think of when they think of God. They're sort of grabbing Moses by the neck like, why did you take us out into the wilderness? And Moses is thinking, God told me to. It's his fault. And uh, so Moses goes to God, and he pleads with them, like, I'm with these people. They're thirsty. They're complaining. I think they're going to kill me. Would you do something about this? And God tells him to pick up a log and to throw it in the water. And I know what you're thinking. That makes no sense. And you're right. It doesn't make any sense. But God often asks us to do things in the wilderness that make no sense, that end up being great. And he picks up the log and he chucks it into the water and immediately a place that has been marked by bitterness becomes a place marked by sweetness. And you can imagine, there's like a million people there, and they are next to this pool of water, and they are lapping it into their mouths. And they are understanding that God is the God who takes what is bitter, or what initially appears to be bitter, and makes it sweet in the wilderness. And then something really interesting happens in the text. It's almost like God is changing the subject, and it took me a little thinking to understand what he was saying. It says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in your eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his statues, then I'll be your healer. Okay, here's the question. What does God turning bitter water into sweet water have to do with keeping God's commandments and God being the healer. I think this is what the text is teaching us. It's saying, listen, God's commandments. Now understand that Israel hadn't gotten God's commandments. So think of the big 10 commandments. They hadn't got any of the commandments yet. So God's preparing them to get the 10 commandments. Here's what he's saying to them and to us. When God starts asking you to obey him and gives you his commandments, here's the way it's going to feel to you. Bitter. It's going to feel to you like to keep God's commandments would be the worst thing ever. That it would ruin your life. That it would make an already difficult life completely unbearable. But if you'll trust God, 
If you will diligently keep his commandments, even though it seems like doing so would end you and result in bitterness in your life, then what will end up happening is those commandments will become sweet. Why? Because the commandments will bring healing into your life. Now, just think about this from a rational perspective. Think about a commandment in the Bible like, do not lie. Okay, I, I, I've met a lot of people who do lie. A lot of them live in my house. They lie to me all the time. I think every friend I've ever had at some point has lied to me in some way, and I've probably lied to every friend that I've ever had. But none of us believes lying is the path to life. No one, no one thinks about the commandments of God and thinks, if I break these, that's the path to good life. Or think of the commandment, do not commit adultery. Like no one, when they get married, is intending on that day to be unfaithful to their spouse or thinks that that path would somehow lead to life. But then what happens is, Satan takes the commandment of God and he twists it and he tells us that we are the exception to the rule. He tells us that the commandment looks bitter to you because it is bitter. And God's holding out on you. And he doesn't want to make your life great. And he wants to ruin you. And so what we do is we don't rationally believe that lying or committing adultery will make our lives better. We don't think about it at that level, we think about it purely from like a, I feel this way, and I want this momentary pleasure sort of way. But when we imply the same thinking to somebody else, like to our parents or to a friend, it's very clear to us that they shouldn't do that. But we think we should do that. So all of us have this experience of the commandments looking bitter to us, but they end up being the path of healing or looking good to us, and they end up being the path of bitterness. So here's what God's saying. I want you to trust me because I'm going to do the same thing. If you will diligently keep my commandments, you will experience healing at the deepest level of your soul and even in the practical dailiness of your life. He's saying, I want you to turn your mind on and think about this. If you don't lie to other people, won't your relationships be better? Won't you be a trusted friend? If you don't commit adultery, won't that make your marriage better? Don't you want that type of relationship with your spouse? See, there'll be healing in your life at multiple levels. So here's what God is saying. The commandments are not a ladder to climb your way up to God. They're not a way of justifying yourself or making yourself right before God. They're also not a wall, like an obstacle that's keeping you from your greatest joy. The commandments are like a path that leads to a stream of pure, refreshing water in the desert. The commandments are like medicine, now, I just recently had a sick kid. I could probably say that every single week that I'm up here. I just recently had a sick kid. Just recently had a sick kid. The kid was throwing up, not feeling good, laying in the fetal position on the floor, 
moaning, all those types of things. And I was pleading with this kid, I need you to drink water. Because just common sense, if you've got the flu, if you're throwing up, you've got to drink water so you don't get dehydrated because if you get dehydrated while you're sick, you can end up in the hospital. So I'm like laying next to this kid on the floor with a cup of water and I'm trying to get them to just drink water. And to them, that felt like the most awful thing in the world. Like just there were lots of tears. I don't want to drink the water. You know, you're mean. I just, just let me lay here. You know, this, this became this moment. And at the end of the day, I could only get them to drink just a little bit of water. Like I wanted them to drink a whole glass of water. I'm still kind of you know, salty about it. It's like, just drink the water. Just, just drank a little bit of water. Why? Because they're seeing my instruction to them about what is best to them as an obstacle to their joy and their flourishing in their life. When the truth is, although there's some bitterness in doing what I'm asking them to do, like they got to sit up and they don't want to do that, that that is actually the path to flourishing. Let's think, when we're not in the moment of temptation right now, which of God's commands, think of the Big Ten, or if you don't know the Big Ten, just think of some commandments that you know from God, which of those right now looks bitter to you? And would actually be sweet if you would be diligent and see it through. We need to start imagining how obeying the commandments could bring healing into our lives. And how we could experience the refreshing of the Lord again. Okay, So we can experience the healing of God through his commandments. The second thing we see in the text is that the Lord nourishes his people. Okay, look with me at Exodus chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Okay, so here's what happens. The people of Israel were on their stomachs in Mara, and they're lapping water into their mouths, and they're filling their jugs with the water, and they're drinking it, and they are thankful. And they see the salvation of God in a very remarkable way for a third time. The Passover has happened. They've crossed the Red Sea. Moses threw a tree into the water, and it turned sweet. And they get their thirst quenched, and they don't start singing, and they're not in stunned silence. They think, well, God can give us water. He could probably give us food, too, because we're hungry. And uh, 
So they, they start remembering that when they were in Egypt, two things. They start remembering that there were these huge pots of meat and there was delicious bread. And they start talking about it with each other and they can, they can smell the bread and they can taste the meat. And they're just like, two things we need are bread and meat. So again, they start grumbling. You're going to see a pattern here to Moses, which is really grumbling against God. Moses is just the closest person they can get their hands on. And God doesn't even wait for Moses this time to call out to him on behalf of the people of Israel. God's like, hey, this whole like, thing of you kind of standing between me and the people, you're kind of just a placeholder. I can actually hear them just fine. And so God hears the people of Israel, and God says, okay, even though my kids are rebellious and grumbling, I'm a good dad, so I'm going to provide what they need. They do, in fact, need food. It's just that they're not trusting me for it. They're grumbling against me for it, okay? And so God says, I'm going to provide just what they need. And so here's what happens. Quail starts falling from the sky. And then bread starts falling from the sky. The people understand what quail is. So there's not a lot more said in the text about the quail. It kind of just focuses in on the bread. The people name the bread manna that they see. This is what manna means. What is it? It's kind of like that communion cracker that you get. What is it? How do they make this stuff? Right? But it's like this fine, flake-like, unleavened kind of bread. And it falls from the sky. Guys, this happens every day for 40 years that the Israelites are in the wilderness. God provides food for them from above. Isn't our response often, there's, there's two different responses I think correspond to the quail and the manna. We respond sometimes to God's provision and we're like, yep, makes sense. This is great. I love quail. I've never had quail. All right. um, but I love, I love this aspect of God's provision in my life. But other times, God provides for us, and we know that it's kind of meeting our needs, but our response is, what is it? Why? Seriously? This? I don't really like this cracker type thing that you're giving me in my life. And, and so we see this repeated pattern throughout Israel's history of sort of, they've got this kind of love-hate relationship with the quail and the manna. But what God is saying to them is, I want you to trust me that this is exactly what you need. This is the nourishment that you need. And so I want you to be stunned and amazed that your food is falling from the sky and that you don't have to plant anything and that you don't have to water anything and you don't have to take care of anything to eat delicious meals instead of complaining about what you do have. He's asking them, to be content with what he is doing, which is a miraculous provision for him. So here's, basically his instruction is, at night, they're supposed to go out and they're supposed to gather the quail. And in the morning, the manna would literally cover the face of the ground all over their tents. And they're supposed to each go out 
and they're supposed to grab a prescribed amount of manna. And if they gathered more manna than they needed, it would go bad. And if they didn't gather enough, like they didn't have enough time or whatever, they would still always have enough. So God is saying, I am your provider. It echoes Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So God provides for them miraculously because he wants them to be thankful, but he provides for them daily because he wants them to be active. He wants them to work. Get up, go out, get it, bring it back. He's showing himself to be their provider. So here's my question for us. Are we thankful and content with daily bread or are we grumbling and complaining with what God has given to us? Constantly looking around, constantly wanting more. Contentment is simply wanting what you already have. No one thinks that if they're discontent that they're going to be more happy, but we all think if I just had more, then I would be happy. But the people who I know who have the most are some of the least happy people, and we all see that too. And so God is asking us to trust him that whatever he provides for us, which is a miraculous gift from above, that we would trust him that that's enough. And let me just say, this is a great way to live. Like the people that I know who, who do this and live this out, even to a small degree, are the happiest people that I know. It reminded me of this time that I piled in a car with some of my friends, and we were driving to a conference together, and uh, I accidentally put something in front of the gas gauge, so I didn't know how much gas was in my car. I'm driving down Interstate 65 in Indiana, and all of a sudden, I'm on the interstate going like 75 miles an hour, and my car just runs out of gas. But I've still got quite a bit of momentum going, in the car. And it wasn't that I ran out of gas so much that the engine completely shut off. I ran out of gas uh, so much that when I pressed the gas pedal, it didn't, you know, move the car forward any. So I'm, so I'm like, all right, here we go. So I'm going, and at that exact moment, there's an off-ramp on the interstate. And so I just keep, I didn't touch the brake, I just go right off this exit ramp. And then I look to the right, and downhill is a gas station. And I'm like, this is perfect. I looked to the left, there was a stop sign, and there was no one coming, so I didn't stop. And I just <laughs> kept going, you know, just right down. And I just go straight down this hill into the gas station. I get right up to the gas pump, and at that exact moment, my car goes, da-dum, da-dum, boom. Runs out of gas. And I got out of the car, and this guy had seen the whole thing happen. So I had this moment with a stranger where he's like, did you just run out of gas? I just ran out of gas. And we like gave each other a high five and had this moment. But, but I had just enough gas to get to the pump. And it ended up being amazing. And it ended up being a great life memory and a great story. That's the reason I'm telling you it. That's... Listen, that's the way that your life is going to feel, trusting God. It's like at times you're going to feel like, oh no, I'm out of gas. I don't have enough. 
Just wait and trust him. Because what our Heavenly Father is telling us through this story is, you have enough. You're going to make it. Because what you have and what you don't have hasn't taken place by chance. Your Heavenly Father has been carrying you this whole time. You can't trust in your circumstances, but you can trust in the goodness of God. And what you need more than you need food and drink is you need to know that your heavenly father loves you. And so he has organized your life in such a way that you will always, no matter how much you have or how little you have, you will always be dependent on him. Thankful, but not inactive. He's got daily things that he wants you to do. And so our trust in him basically comes in two forms, which is kind of what we're going to see next. It comes both in the form of work and it comes in the form of rest. And we see finally that the Lord refreshes us. Exodus chapter 16, verses 27 through 30. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you a Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out from his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Okay, so the daily prescription for the people of God was to go out and gather the quail and the manna and to bring it back into their tents, the exact amount that God had told them to gather. There was one day that was an exception to that. That was the seventh day. And God told them, I'm going to provide for you double on the sixth day. And if you grab a double portion on the sixth day, it's not going to rot, it's not going to stink, and it's not going to go bad like it would on every other day. And then on the seventh day, here's what I want you guys to do. Watch the masters. I want you guys to chill out. I don't want you to go outside. I don't want you to be running around. I don't want you to be workaholics. I want you to rest. And some of you, you totally relate to these Israelites who are like, are you serious? You want me to stay in my house all day? I'm going to get so bored. And plus, I don't really trust this because the person who works the hardest is the one who's going to get the most, and I want to have the most, and so I'm going to be the first. So some of you like, relate to these Israelites who like, set their alarm for 6 a.m. on the Sabbath, and they're out there like, looking for the manna, and there isn't any. And they're wandering around. And God's like, seriously? Like, guys, think about this. The Sabbath has been one of the most written about and argued about commandments of God. Like, does it apply today? Does it not apply today? And people talk about the Sabbath and waste all sorts of ink on the Sabbath. Think about this. God is saying, take a break. Like, this is the easiest commandment ever to keep. It's like, lay down, take a nap. I don't want to. Like, if, if, if anything shows the stubbornness of our heart, it's the reality that we can't take a break, that we can't relax. Why can't we take a break? Because we think that we are earning our life. God is giving us our life. And so the rhythm of receiving in God's economy is to work for six days and to rest 
for one day. And he is telling us in our rest that he is the one who's been providing for us all along. He wants to give you the life that you are trying to earn. Isn't that amazing? You know, I had a mentor named Alex Tuckness, and Alex is a professor at Iowa State, political science, and academia tends to be a very kind of doggy dog world. It's like you have to write, you have to publish, you have to produce, you have to work all the time. And he noticed when he was early on in his career that all of his colleagues were constantly breaking the Sabbath. Just seven days a week, working around the clock, taking their computer with them on vacation, always writing, always publishing, always pushing, always trying. And it was just ruining them. It was ruining their families. They were just filled with anxiety. And Alex learned about this pattern of work and rest. And he made it a commitment in his own life to take one whole day off every week. And his testimony is, this is what's surprising, is that he not only got a day off, but he ended up much more effortlessly being productive than all of his colleagues. Because it turns out, in order to be most productive when you're on, you need to take time off. So that's the ironic thing about God's commandments is that the thing that we're trying to get by breaking the commandments is the thing that he's trying to give by asking us to follow his prescription. Okay, so what's true in your life? Are you more of a person who's trying to turn every day into a Sabbath? Like you're like, Sabbath, yep, seven days a week, that's my life. I'm not working. It's the best. Or are you a person who is trying to avoid this like the plague? Like you're just like, how can I get around this Sabbath concept? It's not part of the New Testament. I'm playing the theological card. I'm getting out of this as fast as I can. You're a person who cannot slow down, cannot stop. And I'm asking both of you actually to do the same thing, and that's trust God. Trust God for strength that you can work six days a week and be diligent, and trust God for rest that you can rest and that the whole world does not depend on you. Here's a really interesting thing. I want to close with this. Do you know that this passage, ultimately, it's not about water and bread and quail and taking a nap. Do you know that this passage is ultimately about Jesus? Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 51. He's having a conversation with somebody about this passage, and this person saying, God used to provide for his people. Remember the manna? And Jesus says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Which is a real weird thing to say. People start asking questions like, we're supposed to eat you? Are you talking about cannibalism? What's going on here? Here's what Jesus is saying. I am 
what you need. I am your spiritual refreshment and nourishment. See, all of this Old Testament stuff is an illustration, it's a vivid picture for us of who Jesus can be for us if we will trust him. So the call of the passage is, don't neglect your relationship with Jesus. It's more important for you than eating or drinking or sleeping. It is the most vital thing to your life. Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus wants to give you the life that you are trying to earn. He wants to give you nourishment and refreshment. He is the treasure that you are after. He is what you're looking for in the food and the drink and the house and the car and the spouse and all of those things. He is the ultimate treasure. And so the invitation of this passage is to come to him. Are you weary? Are you tired? Do you need forgiveness? Are you sad? Lonely? Depressed? Jesus says, I'm everything that you need. Will you come to him with me? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the true bread that came down from heaven to give life to the world, that you're the nourishment that we need, that ultimately in all the stuff of earth, what we are looking for is you, and you offer yourself freely to us. You made yourself accessible to us by coming us. God, would you show us how the things of this earth are coming up empty and show us how you can meet our needs? And would we crawl back to you, come back to you with all of our mess and all of our sin and all of our sadness? And would you meet our needs? In Jesus' name.